Top Hill Recording Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. Back for another season, Neil. Yes, sir. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. And we got a, we've got a follow-up guest. We uh, had so much to talk about the first time we had <laughs> Stephen Allen on that we needed to have a follow-up meeting just to just to hear some more of his stories. So, Stephen, thanks Blast. for joining us. <laughs> oh, man, uh, it's a total blast. And, uh, uh, you know, like I said last time, it's I never I know all this stuff, but I never think about it. And when I start talking about it, I'm sort of amazed that there's there has been so much, you know, it's just a normal way of life for me, man. <laughs> and now you're going to have two podcasts of yourself to listen to. <laughs> I can't wait. I'll probably get a girlfriend out of this somehow. <laughs> well, we're going to have bourbon again, just like the first one. I've got a, I've got a new bourbon here I've never had. It's called, I guess that's pronounced Woolcott, W-O-L-C-O-T-T. Woolcott. Okay. You it, Neil? Nope. Where's it from? Kentucky, of course. Oh, you always do uh, Kentucky bourbon. Yeah. It, it, there's no other kind, man. And I tell you, well, this is kind of got a. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't have uh, a, a real deep color to it, but. Cheers, cheers. Neil. Cheers, cheers Stephen. Stephen Allen. Cheers, brothers. <laughs> so, did you get everything uh, done this morning? You needed to at Lowe's. Oh yeah, I got down there and it was like eight got eight thousand guys in line buying two by fours and crap, and uh, you know I got stuck in that, and I don't know, it was just one of those. Everything kind of. It's a perfect storm today. I was doing this. I was doing that. I had this. I had that. And then, of course, trying <laughs> to get home to do this interview. And uh, I appreciate you guys uh, pushing it out a little bit so I could get on here. Yeah, everything's done, man. I'm happy as I can totally be. All right. <laughs> so there's no lows in your uh, your little town there, huh? Oh, God. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. Well, you know, I, I tell you, I was living over in Dunmore, Kentucky, which is absolutely nowhere. I mean, there is nothing, there is nothing, nothing there. It was 20 miles to the store one way, and they, they didn't have like a hardware store, like a normal hardware store. They had some sort of a gift shop that was supposed to be a hardware store. It was like weird. So this is like compared to Dunmore, Kentucky. This is like living in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, we looked at MapQuest and we figured out that you are exactly one hundred miles from us. One hundred so. on the dot. Where where are y'all guys now? We're in Fairdale, Kentucky, southwestern side of Louisville. Oh, okay. I I, I sort of I thought y'all were down, but no, you're up there. Okay. I'm talking to out of towners here. I'm I'm pretty knocked out now. <laughs> for sure man we put a pin in the the last conversation because you you kind of you teased us with an amazing story that i'm sure oh god we, we, we're getting ready to hear and oh, uh, my Lord. I, don't, I don't remember what it was <laughs> oh it's a good one it's a good one well did i do any lead up to it yes you did here it is you heard the georgia jones song in the first line of He Stopped Loving, he stopped her. loving her. You knew yeah. something about the first line you were going to tell us about. Okay. All right. Yeah. We can start there. All right. Um, <laughs> man, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, man. You kind of uh, put me on a limb here. I'm, I'm sorry to jump into it so quick, but I was like, Oh, that's cool, right, man. I got to hear this story. <laughs> 
No, it's a very interesting st- story. I mean, Curly Putnam and Bobby Braddock wrote the song, and I knew them well and actually wrote with Curly some, and they were real friends with Billy Sherrill. So I was working for Billy Sherrill, and I was always in his office. So they had brought the song down there like about a year before, and Billy loved the song, and he said, I want to cut it on Jones, but you're going to have to be cool because I got to get him in the right mind. And they're like, okay. All right. So what do you do, Billy Sherrill? You go, okay, whatever you say, Billy. So month after month after month after month, it, it goes on. And, you know, Billy, he didn't feel the heat so much as he just, he knew what he had to do and he didn't want anybody messing with him. So I was over there one day when Buddy Killen, Curly Putnam and, uh, and Bobby Braddock, you know, Buddy from Tree and then the two writers, they came over and, you know, Buddy was really good friends with Billy. And so we were all having a cocktail and uh, it, the room is kind of tense. And Curly, <laughs> Curly says, this is one of the shyest guys you ever met. And he just said, well, Billy, uh, we want to know what's going on with the song. And he's like, well, we're going to do it. And he says, well, it's been over a year. He said, I know. And so uh, he says, well, we got a couple other people interested in it. So Billy just looked at him put his drag down. He said, well, then go with them. (laughs) (laughs) And they they went, oh, 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 wait a minute. No, no, y'all go, go with them. Go with them. Let them do it. That'll be fine. They backed it back so fast that, I mean, it's like they fell over. They were trying to back out of it so fast because Billy just said, like, screw it. Take it. I don't care. So Buddy, the publisher, jumps in and goes, oh, well, Billy, they're just wondering a word about the song, blah, blah. So it all all quietened down. So finally, it was set up to record, and I was there that day, too. I took the tape down for the, the, the little demo that they had down for the guys to hear in the studio, Studio studio B, Columbia. And it was a regular crew, Pete Drake, uh, let's see, Henry Sorecki on bass. Uh, um, I mean, just the guy in pig pig on piano, you know, who he was just the guy. So we're down there. And so George comes in and he's rocking. So we get to the studio and I think they did one song first, you know, just kind of a throwaway. And then they, then they knew they were going to need some time. So they were going to probably take the last two hours and have it so they could really record the song properly. And so the way the song starts off, as you hear, it starts, it starts off cold. There is no intro or anything like that. Yeah. Kerrigan, who's the drummer, he would count it so George could come in and be like, three, four, one. I thought I love her, like that. George could not get it. I mean, it, it got crazy because George got so pissed off. He said, why we got to do it like that? And, and Billy said, because that's that's going to make it unbelievably unique. So they kept trying to do it. George Jones couldn't count. He couldn't count. One, two, three, <laughs> four, one, go. Could not do it. <laughs> so everybody's just sitting around and nobody's laughing or no, nobody. They're like, you know, Jones is pissed. You know, he's looking like an idiot out there because he's never had to do this before. So Billy comes out of the control room and uh, trying to cool George down. He went, well, all right, we'll get him, man. Just relax. We're cool. So 
he goes over to Pig and he says, Pig, this is what I want you to do. And he, he reached around Pig and he went, boom, boom, da, da, boom, da, boom. Put that on there and let that be the intro, but only Pig plays it. And then, George, you can come in on that, right? He says, yeah. So Pig goes, boom, boom, da, boom, boom, da, 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 da. Okay. So he, he was able to come in. And they, I don't know, maybe two or three takes, they nailed it. It was so simple for them to do. It's like everybody was on the same page, and it just went great. Everybody was freaked out about the song, all the players on the session. I mean, they knew it was something special. So it's cut. It's in the can. Now they got to get George <laughs> on it the same. So he doesn't do it that day. He, he goes out and, and comes back in a week or two or three. And I wasn't there for these things, but there were several sessions that George came in to sing this thing, and they had to keep the intro like it was, with a boom, boom, da, da, boom, like that. Now, the final record, they cut that out. So it sounds like he comes in cold. Really? Yeah. So Interesting. Did he have issues with time, or was that just one that was so different at the time that he couldn't figure it out? No, he just never had to do that before. You know, everything has yeah. an intro, and, I mean, he had perfect timing and everything, but... He just couldn't get one, four, one. He just couldn't feel it. You know, he couldn't feel it at all. So, but yeah. Pig plays that piano chord the way Pig always played them, and he just knew he fell right into it. So, when you hear the song, if you go back and listen to the song, check out that opening and see how relaxed it sounds. He just, he just nailed it, man, doing that thing with Pig. So, for the next few months, Okay, I never went to any of these sessions. They were pretty much closed. But George would come in and try to sing the song, and he couldn't do it. And him and Billy started getting really kind of uptight at each other. And also, again, you know, Killen's asking him, "Well, how's it going with George?" Well, I'm I'm trying to get him to sing it, and he's like, "The track's cut." Yeah. What do you mean you can't get him to sing it? Well, he's just not singing it right. And Billy, <laughs> but he's like, "What do you mean he's not singing it right?" He said, "Well." He's not. He said, I got to get him on the right day. It's got to be the right day. And Kill's like, oh, my God, well, that could be forever. And he said, yeah, it could. It could. <laughs> he said, I got to get him on the right day. So they went in like three times. The second time, George came in, and he was singing the wrong melody. He was singing like almost like the old rugged cross or something. I mean, he was singing some old, old gospel song because he didn't know the melody. So Billy would stop him and go, hey, man, you're not singing the melody. And he goes, what are you talking about? He says, you're not singing the melody of the song. That went on for a whole session. George couldn't get it. He walked out. <laughs> I think the third or fourth session, Jones came in that day, and Billy sensed it. He knew he had him on the right day. I don't. This is what Billy personally told me. He never shared it with anybody else. But George came in. He was subdued, and there was no clowns around him or anything. And it was just me and him and Lou Bradley in the studio. That was it. He went out there and and just killed it. And that was the record. I'm sure they probably had some punch-ins or something, but basically he sang, sang it all the way through and uh, went from there. And you know, it's probably possibly the greatest country vocal that anyone's ever done. Came out and it was like song of the year like two or three times in a row. I mean – you know, it won like three years of Grammys for Song of the Year. It's just like crazy, crazy song. But Curly and uh, and Bobby wrote it. Curly had the idea, and he thought it was too morbid. And so him and Bobby tried to make it 
not so morbid. And they placed Billy the morbid one, and he liked that. So they, when they sent him another copy of one that's less morbid, Billy said, no, nah, that, that don't work at all. Yeah, I'd, I'd always heard that about that song, He Stopped Loving Her. I'd, I always heard that, and I didn't know who it was, but before it was released, that someone, I didn't know if it was a writer or or George Jones or who it was, said yeah. that that song is way too morbid to ever be a hit. Yeah, it was probably George. Because yeah. he wouldn't know yeah. a hit if you hit him with it. You know, he wouldn't. He just knew <laughs> nothing about music. He knew nothing about anything other than how to sing the shit out of a country song. And the other stuff, he didn't even bother. He wasn't interested. Yeah. And I mean, the mic they were using was like a U-47. It's a Neumann mic. And it's, it's, an, original, it's an original German mic. And, uh, you know, it's probably 1950s or something like that. And that is the oh, most wow. saturated microphone you can, you can buy. I mean, they're 25 or 30 grand now. What? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and but you just can't ever find one for sale. If someone gets one, they never sell it. It's the best mic ever made, and that's what George is singing into. And uh, Lou Bradley did, did all of Billy's stuff. Tammy, everybody else, Billy cut. He's he's doing the vocal, and he's got it dialed in like he wants it with compression and a little bit of reverb and stuff like that. So that was it. The song came out, and uh, it it blew everybody's mind. Everybody's fine. Did you ever write any songs with those guys? Uh, Curly and Bobby? Yeah. I, I wrote one with Curly one time, but we were, th- we were screwing around. I never sat down with Bobby either. Now, with Billy Sherrill, I wrote many songs with him. I had a lot of hits with him, with Tammy and uh, oh, Johnny Duncan had a number one with us. And, and Glenn Sutton, Billy Sherrill, and myself wrote a song called Hello, My- Hello Mexico and Adios, Baby to You which was a, a big song for Johnny, De- no, Johnny Duncan, Johnny Duncan. Because Billy and Glenn Sutton wrote, uh, they all wrote Almost Persuaded together. That's probably one of the top three greatest country songs ever written, Almost Persuaded. Uh, so they were, they knew each other from way, way back, but they both came from the same area of Alabama. Uh, when Billy went to Memphis and, and Glenn stayed in Alabama and then, Somehow they both ended up in Nashville, and I mean, they were they were wild guys. I mean, these guys were just really wild guys, and uh, one of a kind. Billy Sherrill was voted. This is about ten years ago, the greatest songwriter of the century. <laughs> oh wow! What the century? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. The reason he got that is because they looked at who has the most BMI awards. Well, Billy has like ninety eight. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, I've got 18. That's really good. Most guys <laughs> have four or five. That's normally what a songwriter gets. You just don't get a chance like that. <laughs> well, I'd have to say most guys probably have zero, but <laughs> well, if, if you say most guys yeah. have four or five. <laughs> well, I think it most is. Most guys. I mean, yeah, you can have a hit record and not get a BMI award. I mean, it's the top. What they do is it's, 52, it's 50 weeks they monitor and whatever songs get the most play in those 50 weeks, that's why it's 50 songs. So it's one song a week gets picked. And it usually has to be in the top five or something like that. But that's really how it how it works. So if you get to four, I had two or three awards that were fours. I had two or three that were ones and maybe some even less or a lot of twos. You know, you got a lot of a lot of twos. Just get right there and sit for two weeks. But, yeah, man, Billy was uh, – 
I got to write with him a pretty long time and not many people got to do that. He didn't, he just didn't write with other people. He wrote with his crew and which was Nara Wilson and Carmel Taylor and uh, George Ritchie, some of the other guys and, and Glenn. Uh, I was hanging out with Glenn Sutton a lot because he's the funniest man on the planet. He was just a great, great guy, great guy. He and Billy had not spoken in years, you know, and I'm going to say this was about 1978. And they, they had a falling out over something at Columbia Records. And basically, Glenn just, they never spoke again. So I'd go see Glenn and talk to him, say, hey, man, I saw Billy the other day, man. And he'd say, oh, how's he doing? I said, oh, he's doing good. And so I'd go to Billy's office and say, hey, man, I saw Glenn the other day. I'm like, really? What's that old boy doing? Oh, he's just fucking around, you know. He's just, just doing his thing. So... I got the idea. I walked in with, I walked into Sutton's office one day and he said, I got a song I want to write with you. I said, okay, what is it? He says, it's called Adios Baby and no, Hello Mexico and Adios Baby to you. And I just went, are you kidding me? (laughs) I said, that is, that writes itself. And he's laughing and everything. I said, man, I got a great idea. Why don't I call Billy? He's cutting Johnny Duncan next week. Let's the three of us write this thing together, man. It'd be incredible. Glenn was like, okay. We went over to Billy's office and Glenn laid out the idea. And I mean, it was like I wasn't even in the room. I mean, I was a part of the song and working with them on it, but they just got into this jive-ass stuff that they did. Everything was a big joke. And Billy was playing the guitar and Glenn was just firing off lines left and right. And then Billy would put one in and I'd get something in. But if it took 30 minutes, I, I would say that's that's a long time. And uh, we went down in the studio and actually Billy, <laughs> Billy did did the demo on guitar, which I wish I had that tape. Uh, you know, I, it's probably gone. But uh, so he did it. And when Dun- Johnny Duncan heard it, he went crazy. I mean, Johnny Rodriguez actually should have cut that because Billy was doing him, too. We had a big hit with Johnny called North of the Border that, that Billy and I wrote it. Johnny did, but Johnny Duncan was up next, so they gave it to Duncan, and they went to four, and I got to go on stage for the last time those two guys ever went on to BMI stage together to get an award. I sort of set it up, actually, to get them guys to write, and then at that point, they actually started hanging out again together. You know, there was just nothing like Billy Sharon Glenn Sutton. Hey, everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Top Hill Recording. Hit the support button, 99 cents, four ninety nine, or nine ninety nine per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Talking about songwriting, and, you know, I think Neil shared with you last time, he, he's never... He's never written songs with anyone, and and I definitely haven't. I haven't done much writing. But, you know, a lot of you guys that have had a lot of success always collaborate with with others, it seemed like. So I guess uh, you must feel like working with others ends up with a a better song. Is that right? Not not necessarily. Uh, Songwriters are incredibly lazy. And (laughs) writing... It's very strange when you get a get in a room with somebody else, and you you might know them, you might know them well, or you might not have ever met them before. But when the chemistry gets going, when you get in the room, 
And let's say that somebody has an idea or, you know, the, the room just had a good vibe to it. You know, it just starts spontaneous things start happening and that you start bouncing off each other. You know, all of a sudden you've got an idea and then you take the idea and expand on it. And then you come up with a title and the melody and all that kind of stuff. So it's fantastic writing with other people, but I, I don't care for it. In fact, I don't do it anymore. I, not unless it's something that is politically going to get me in a situation, then I'll, I'll write with Hitler. I don't care. It don't matter to me. <laughs> and uh, the, be- the biggest songs I ever wrote, I wrote by myself, which was the first one, Take Time to Know Her. I wrote that by myself. And then I had another one by myself called Sleeping with the Radio On. That was by myself. That was a really good song. And then I guess the Jody Messina song, Stand Beside Me, I wrote that by myself too. So the Take Time to Know Her is just, that was magic. That was a miracle. But the Stand Beside Me, huge, huge song. It's already at 4 million plays. And someday when you want to do some math, if you take 4 million and multiply it times three minutes and 50 seconds. If you do that, you're going to find out that that would be like the song plays continually 24 hours a day for like a year and a half. <laughs> wow. That's how much play that is, a three million performance song. I mean, add it up one day and you'll, you'll go, that can't be right. And it is, it's astounding, you know, what wow. it is. Yeah. It's a crutch Per se, you know, writing by yourself is, is, is harder and it's easier because you ain't got nobody to mess with. It's you. But getting in a room with another guy or two other guys or girl or whatever, there's a chemistry there that can happen and it can be really, really great. And it can also really suck. Uh, so <laughs> the Bob McDill wrote some of those huge uh, Williams songs, like Good Old Boys Like Me. He wrote it by himself. I mean, how, nope, you can't write a better song than that. You know, so it it just sort of happens that that's become the music row way. I mean, they've they've always co-written, you know, and there was just a few guys that even wrote a song by themselves, you know. But now it's like the norm. Quick story about what's going on with the three-way thing, because they got about 2000, the three-way writing thing. That's all that was happening. So one day I was working with somebody or some publisher or somebody. And I said, what's the deal with writing? I mean, why are these all of these guys writing in threes? I said, it seems to me like somebody ain't doing something. And uh, he he laughed. He said, no. He said, what it is is they got a team, and this is the way it lines out. He said, there's one guy in there that's just an idea guy. He comes up with just these great ideas, maybe figure out a little bit of it. But you know it's a hit idea when you hear it. And then another one of the boys is really good at melody and chords and arrangement. Okay. That's, he's not very good at coming up with an idea, but he, once you give him the idea, he can run with it. Uh, and the third thing is the lyric. Now everybody's going to be contributing on the lyric, but what this guy does is he's the one who's the best lyricist of the bunch. So it's like you, you got a team working on it. So that just sort of came around naturally because when we did three ways back in the old days, we didn't think about one person doing this or that. But it was always a drag if you got a guy in there that wanted to play the guitar and do the melody when you wanted to play the guitar and do the melody. You bounce into each other and, you know, it'd just be a, be a mess. But when I heard that, that was pretty ingenious, man, that they had figured that out. So that's, that's what some of the really big teams that are having all the cuts the last 10 years. 
Do you think, um, especially lyrically co-writing a song, do you think you lose... I just imagine being uh, somebody that writes by myself, you right. can put on a page as much personal as you want or as much make-believe as you want or any of that, but when you write something that's really deep and, and hits, right, that, that grabs other people, I, I just feel like lyrically writing with somebody else would be harder to capture that emotion if it's not coming from a singular source. I don't, I, that's probably a stupid thought and a stupid way to say no, that. No, no, no. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's something you would wonder about. And uh, there is some truth in it. And then there's some not truth in it because some of the greatest songs that have been written in the last 20 years have been written by two people. So who came in? I mean, a great example is Wind Beneath My Wings. Okay. Mm. Larry, Larry, who wrote that? Larry, he used to be, he used to be the lead singer with the New Beach. You remember the, we like Billy Butters. We like Toast and Jam. Larry, uh -huh. Larry, Larry, Larry Henley. Okay. Uh, he was a good friend, a complete wild man. And he was a deep writer and he was a very weird little cat. You know, he had a lot of problems <laughs> in his head, but she just loved him because <laughs> he was so screwed up all the time. You just had to give it to him because he always wore his heart out on his sleeve. And not only did he wear it, but he'd like be yelling at people saying, look at my heart on my sleeve. You know, <laughs> uh, that's just the kind of person he was. But the whole song came from something his mother had told him many years ago that she would be the wind beneath his wings and he never forgot it. So he hooked up with a guy that was a so-so writer, Jeff Silbar. Uh, kind of a corporate songwriter, very nice cat and everything. And I'm, I'm sure he's more talented than I'm giving him. But Larry brought the whole song in, you know. I mean, and Jeff happened to be there that night or whenever they wrote it. And Jeff is on the song. But that was all Larry. All of it was Larry. And uh, sometimes I've walked in rooms and took taken the song over and, you know, I came up with the heart and the soul of it and the melody, whatever. And then the other person came up with something that was really great. But writing solo is very hard and it also takes discipline. And also you're editing yourself as you're going. So, you know, to do it successfully, you really got to know what you're doing with your writing, you know, that you can stop yourself from going a certain direction if it's not really working. That's where another person comes in. Maybe you're trying to do this bridge that's four lines long and you're just killing yourself trying to do it. And the co-writer goes, why don't you just short it, shorten it to two lines? That'd be plenty. You're like, oh, my God, never thought of that. You know, <laughs> yeah, it just it, it comes and goes. I'm much prouder of the songs I wrote by myself than anything that I ever wrote with yeah. anybody else. That makes total sense. Yeah, it's like my stuff, man. And uh, yeah, and I'm that kind of person. Like now I won't I won't write with anybody. Like I said, I don't want to, you know, I know how to do it. All I got to do is give myself the time and the discipline and a little bit of inspiration and then just keep at it and keep at it. I mean, I'm working on a song. I'm working on two songs right now that I wrote 10 years ago. I've got great songs, great title, great hook. But something was wrong in one and something was wrong with the other. Well, I've worked it out. I even changed the title, same title, but it's changed to keep working on it. And it's like, I'm amazed that it's it's held up that long. And it was that fresh when I wrote it, and it's still fresh, and it's got a great idea. So, you know, I, I keep going back to things like that that I rediscovered. Like, the other day, I played this song the other day. I had, it came up on my pod or something, 
I haven't heard it in nine years. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, what's that? And I listened, and I went, oh, my God, listen to that. I was like, God, that's good. So that got me thinking, and and then I came up with another way to do it, and then I changed uh, one of the instruments that was being played on, and that, that changed the whole thing. So I'm really excited about this song, man. Really, really cool song. So what will you do with those? You get these two songs where you think they need to be and ready to go. What do you do at that point? Well, I, you know, ever since 1967, I've had publishing deals uh, right up to about, let's see, probably 2015 is when I had my last deal. And the publisher, the way it's structured, and especially now, the publisher has to be the middleman to take the song to the producer, to the artist, or to the manager. The days when you can just walk in somewhere with a song have been over for a long time. You know, you got to know somebody that knows somebody. You got to be a sign writer. You got to have had four hits in a row. You got to be somebody. The publisher takes what you do and calls Dan Huff and says, hey, I got a great song for Keith Urban. So that's how that does. But as far as just going in and trying to pitch something these days, you know, it's too structured. You just can't get through. You can't get through the maze because there's so many people. You know, I think I said last time we talked it. when I got in 67, there's like really about 30 songwriters in town. I mean, you know, I'm sure that's wrong. But I mean, ones that were making money, you know, and now they've estimated there's 30,000 songwriters in Nashville. Now, 99% of them aren't making any money, but they're here and they all think they're going to get it. And so they're down playing and writing every day and, you know, and, and trying to do it. So that's the inspiration of Nashville. Yeah, a lot of those guys and girls are in uh, groups themselves doing the same thing, producing and just pumping out content like crazy as well. Well, that's really all you can do, man. You know, it's kind of like running after the dog running after its tail. Because when I walk into that situation, when we were working, we were working in the 80s and the 90s. The, the guys, the people I work with and me, we were really high. Like, uh, we were always really moving really fast with what we were doing. And we were jiving and talking and doing this thing. You know, and I'm sure it freaked out some people because we kind of moved in a different rhythm. You know, we were, we were pretty, pretty crazy guys. Nowadays, those same guys that were doing what we were doing and having the success, I mean, they're the same way. You walk in a room with them, it's just like they're bouncing off the walls, you know. For me, it's uncomfortable because uh, yeah. it's all bull- it's all bullshit, you know. Most of it's 99% of it's just bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, you got plenty of good songwriters in town that can't sing, they get cuts, they can't play, they get cuts, they can't write, they get cuts, you know. I mean, there's a lot of political <laughs> situations in town that that's come to and uh it's working more like the pop and the rock music was back in the 70s and 80s business wise now it's it's a big 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 business yeah in la with with the junk they cut out there it's all in-house so songwriters that just wrote songs they all tried to come to nashville great ones they wanted to get in on this because you could actually go in a room with another person and sit down with a guitar and go i got this idea they go oh, okay what that doesn't happen in the rest of the world. Just doesn't. So our last episode, yes, sir. You, you talked about having a lot of your songs that Joe Cocker recorded. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit? I, I, I've been interested uh, hearing more about your your careers, where they crossed. You know, you and Joe Cocker, and how long how long was that relationship, and kind of uh, what what did that look like? You know, I mean, obviously he was one of my favorite favorite guys, and. Uh, 
you know, with You Are So Beautiful, I mean, I always say this, that Joe Cocker hit the, the greatest note in rock and roll music ever at the end of You Are So Beautiful, where he goes, that little break, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it. If somebody would have tried to fix that, it would have ruined it. I mean, it's so vulnerable and so intimate that he does his thing where his voice cracks, you know? So anyway, I, uh, I don't remember how I met him exactly, but Dennis Morgan and I wrote a song called Love on a Fade. And I don't know how he got it, but he got the song and cut it. And that was my first one. That was probably, uh, in, uh, let's see, probably uh, about 83 or 84 something like that. It was a good cut. I haven't heard it in years, but it was a good cut. And it was, you know, nobody was getting Joe Cocker cuts in Nashville. So it was, it was really good for us, you know, really cool. So the next thing I hear about him, a guy on, I didn't know, but I met was going to produce the next Joe Cocker album. And his name was Charlie Midnight. And he was a guy from uh, New York city. And he was sort of a songwriter producer guy. And he's just a good businessman and uh they wanted him to to record joe so charlie heard the fade thing and he liked it he said who wrote that and a guy named steve davis and so oh okay so he contacted me and said hey man i'm doing joe if you got any songs i'm like oh my god yeah yeah i said i just got out of the studio a couple of days ago i got two right now that i think he might like and i'm like well send them up <laughs> so i sent it up and they went crazy over them and uh Let's see, one of them I wrote with Marshall Chapman, okay? And the other one I wrote by, it was two songs. One I wrote by myself. There's a YouTube of it in Europe of him singing it on stage live. And it's it's a European crowd. And, I mean, Germany and Italy were cocker freaks. I mean, they bought all of his product. And he would tour over there, man. And it, it'd be like the Beatles. I mean, it was they were crazy about this guy. Wow. So, anyway, uh, uh, Marshall Chapman... And I went to lunch one day and she was getting out of the car to go back in her apartment. And I said something like, you know, we'll take care of yourself. She said, well, I'm doing everything I can just to keep from drowning. And I said, what? I said, what? She said, just to keep from drowning. I said, oh, my God, what a song title. She's like, oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that is. I said, look, let's get together and write that. She's like, "Okay, so. A couple of days later, she came to my place and I came up with this very stylized double bass piano lick that uh, is very reminiscent of the old Cocker stuff, you know, and we wrote that and we went and demoed it somewhere and sent it to Charlie and they really went crazy over this one. So that means I've got two on that album, you know. Now, the funny thing was they were they were recording. They were recording in New York, and one day, Charlie calls me in the studio. He says, hey, man, we're cutting your song. He says, but it doesn't have a bridge. I said, yeah, I know. This is just to keep from drowning. He says, you got to write a bridge, like, right now. I'm like, uh, okay. I said, okay, I will. He says, well, get it and call me back. I just immediately went over to the piano, and I just did the simplest little thing, you know, I just dropped down from a five to a four chord and I just kind of sit there and then I went up to the five and then back to the, to the chorus again. And uh, I, I just came up with some dopey lyrics that, you know, I didn't think were much of them. 
But I called Charlie back and I played it to him over the phone. And Joe was standing there and they, they loved it, man. So they said, look, this is what we want you to do. Because <laughs> you didn't have MP3s and the internet then. But he says, what I want you to do, he said, I want you to sing it over the song, you know, with your piano. Sing it. And we're going to record it from our end on a tape recorder with a microphone, like up to the speaker that's in the studio. So I just sat down and I said, so you just kind of want me to play a little bit of it and then go into it. He says, yeah. So I just played a little couple of chords and I went into the bridge and did the whole thing and I ended it. And that was it. And sure enough, man, uh, they loved it. They cut it that way. And uh, Joe remembered me from then on. I didn't talk with him again, but uh, the next album he was going to do, I was it just moved out to Colorado and one of his managers called me and said, we're getting ready to do Joe, and Joe really wants to hear some of your songs. So I sent him a song called Highway Highway. They loved that. They recorded that. And then uh, I sent him another song called Just the Way Her Love Is, and they loved that. So they cut two. Both of those I wrote by myself. Both of those went on the album. So what are we up to now? Five? That's five. Five. <laughs> five, okay. So from there, he kind of went through some weird stuff with management and he got into this thing. He wouldn't go do Joe Cocker, like the gut bucket, Leon Russell, you know, like show me the money, you know, that, that box top song he did that was so, you know, with the big Leon Russell piano, which was sort of like the song that just keep from drowning was it had that kind of a thing. And I said, man, if you cut Joe Cocker, like Joe Cocker, everybody's going to buy it. And they go, no, he, they like him doing this kind of a hard rock pop in Germany and Italy. So they made him cut all this bullshit music because he had such great response. And it was really the only place in the world he sold anything. So they kept cutting this, these shitty albums. I mean, the albums that, that I was on with him, they weren't any good, but they were Joe Cocker. So they sold four or 500,000 copies uh, each one and having two on there, that can get, that could get kind of nice. So. <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything from him. I went to London and ended up writing with a guy named Steve DeBerry over there. And we wrote two songs and uh, Joe had gotten new management. I don't even know how we pitched it to him, but somebody pitched it to him. He cut both of those and both of them were singles. And the album was actually called different roads. And that was a single in Europe. And it seemed like there's one more, maybe I missed one back in there somewhere, but, that's about it. And then his manager called me a year or two ago and said, Hey, we're getting ready to go with Joe. He wants to hear some songs. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm, I've got a couple of great things. And he said, all right. And then Joe died. That was it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I made man. a lot of money with that cat, man. I never oh, had a hit God. with him. Never had a hit with him, but I had so many cuts. I don't know of anybody other than maybe John Lennon who has had, that many cuts. I'd say Randy Newman has had a lot of cuts. Yeah. But I don't know anybody that's had nine. Nobody. John Hyatt's had a few, you know. Is that the artist that's recorded the most of your songs? Wow. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. That's a record. Yeah, that's a lot. That's so many. It's amazing. <laughs> How about with Tammy Wynette? How many songs with Tammy? I think probably four or five, but I get this phone call and I'm like, hello. And this, this girl on the other end says, uh, Steve, this is Tammy Wynette. And I'm like, oh, what? You know, she said, 
Billy, Billy told me that you guys are working on a new song for me. And I'm like, yeah. She says, well, Billy wants you to come down here. We want to finish it up. And we want, I want you to finish it up. So I went down there. One of a kind was the name of the song. Really big record for Tammy. And so I went down and, you know, she was hanging around. Billy and I wrote the whole thing. No, she wasn't involved in the writing. But Billy had a session going on downstairs. And so <laughs> Billy says, well, y'all work on the song. I'm going to go to the studio. So he shuts the door. And Billy had this lavish office. You know, I mean, it was just it was just crazily lavish with bookcases and, you know, beautiful carpets and everything else. So Billy had this this upright piano that is now in the Hall of Fame or whatever that is down there. He wrote all his big stuff on that song. And that's the song. That's the piano is upright, old upright. So what it was, was I was supposed to teach Tammy the song. So. I'm playing the piano and I know the melody and everything. So <laughs> I'm sitting there on the seat and Tammy Wynette sits down as close as you can possibly sit to another human being without sitting on them. And her face, her, her head is about five inches from my head. Okay. So I'm going, da, 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 you know, and then she go, okay, she Da, da, da. And it's Tammy Wynette singing in your ear. And you're just like, Oh, Lord. And when is this Tammy, real? That was a moment. I mean, what struck me was, is that how much she sounded like Tammy. Now, I know that probably sounds bizarre, but when you hear her like that, that voice that you hear on record, that's her voice. I mean, and you can't believe it. It's like five inches from your ear, you know? And I can imagine. <laughs> this was when she was as hot as she ever got. I mean, as far as being beautiful. Because, I mean, she was red hot. I mean, she was so beautiful, <laughs> and so sexy looking, and so womanly, and such a sweet, sweet girl. And plus, she's Tammy Wynette. That, you know, we were there for about 45 minutes. And the two of us, nobody else ever came in the room. So we went through it two or three times and she was, by the time we got through, she was singing and Billy came back upstairs and she sang the whole thing for him. And Billy said, fantastic. We'll do it on the next session. So that's how that happened. And then Billy and I wrote another song that she really loved too. And that was another big hit for, for, uh, for Tammy. So we wrote two, I think we wrote three or four, but only two of them were singles, but they were both BMI awards. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> We, we definitely appreciate you coming back on Top Hill Recording Podcast. I think you, uh, Neil, he's our first uh, two-time guest, isn't he? No, Toy, but that was because yep. we wrote a song. Yes, the first actual real two-time guest. <laughs> not that you're not real, Toy. <laughs> he's a friend. Toy's a, Toy's a friend. We knew oh. him before all this. That, that's, that's the only why I said that. That was like episode two, I think, or three. Yeah, two it and was, four. It so. was early. We really appreciated getting to know you and... I uh, enjoyed talking to you, and I think our, our listeners will definitely uh, enjoy this podcast also. I, I know we could sit and tell stories all day long. Oh my yeah, God. I think uh, I think so. I mean, we're about at 30, 38 now. Yeah, <laughs> okay. sweet. We still got, we're, we're, we're working our way. There's, a, there's, there's, another, there's another 30 years. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, it's great to talk about songwriting and, you know, how, how wonderful it is. Uh, incredible to be able to do that your whole life. Uh, it's just, I don't know anybody that's been able to do that, uh, that actually got lucky on their first song like that and was immediately, uh, you know, picked up. So anyway, uh, hey man, pleasure, pleasure. 
glad we could do this, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Yep, Absolutely, we will. Man. We'll see you next week, listeners. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>